Welcome back to another lecture in the series on quantitative methods, psychometrics, and public service. For this lecture, I'm going to be working through Chapter 3 from Michael Furr's text, Psychometrics and Introduction. And the title to Chapter 3, which will be the title of this lecture, is Individual Differences and Correlations. And for this lecture, I'm going to highlight some quotes from the chapter, uh, elaborate on them, maybe give some different examples, and work through all of chapter three. All right. So, as first starts out by telling us at the beginning of the chapter, um, they're going to. This chapter covers a few core psychological measurement constructs. Um, these include variability, which is going to be how something moves or varies um, either over time or across people. Covariability is going to be how two things vary together. So you can think as a classic uh, physical measurement one, uh, height and weight. As you are taller, you are more likely to weigh more, so those things vary together. And we'll give some examples of of that in the psychological measurement case. And then finally, we're going to talk about how some different strategies for interpreting test scores um, so that you they are, they are meaningful. And since a lot of our psychological constructs, uh, attributes that we are going to be talking about, we want to be looking at those relative to other individuals um, given the types of scales that we're going to be using and the actual attributes we're trying to measure. So moving right along, uh, first says, as, as I mentioned previously, psychological measurement rests on the assumption that people differ or might differ with respect to their behavior or other psychological characteristics. One of the examples the book uses throughout is IQ, you can also think of different levels of motivation, different levels of job satisfaction, different levels of public service motivation, all these different things that you might measure. Um, the idea here is that different people have different amounts of these. And we're going to focus on one of these types, but you can think about differences uh, inter-individual and intra-individual. And intra-individual is one person's uh, attributes over time at different points in time, different contexts. And that can vary along the psychological attributes. But we're going to look mostly at inter-individual variability, which is variability across different individuals. So again, I have different levels of motivation than you, different levels of job satisfaction than you, and so the idea is that those differences across you and I are inter-individual. So before we move on into the variability and distribution score section, um, ends this section with a, a quote here that I'd like to share. The process of the quantification of psychological differences begins with the recognition that scores on a psychological test or measure will, 
or at least can, vary from person to person or from time to time, just like we were mentioning. When taken from a group of people or at different points in time from the same individuals, these test scores or measures constitute a distribution of scores. The differences among the scores within a distribution are often called variability. A key element in most behavioral research is to quantify precisely the amount of variability within a distribution of scores. So when we're talking about variability, which we're going to uh, define more carefully here in a minute, um, we, we're going to be interested in vari variance across some psychological test or some measure, and all the measures on that psychological test can be thought of as a distribution of scores on the test. They're distributed across a bunch of different potential scores. Not everyone makes the same grade. And what we're going to be looking at as we go through this lecture today is the variance, the variability within that distribution of scores. So if you have any background in statistics, some of these words are probably starting to sound familiar to you, variance or variability um, and distributions. And so you may have had some exposure to this, but I'm going to walk through basically what the statistical concept of variance is. How do we measure variability across individuals? And the basic idea here, uh, without going into way too much detail, is that to calculate the variance or the variability across some scores, we want to know how much variability there is. How much do things vary? To do this, the first thing you need is a measure of central tendency. What is the typical score, what's the average, is the, is the measure of central tendency that we're going to use. And in particular, it's referred to as the mean. And so you start with the mean, and the way you calculate the mean is you add up all the scores from each individual, and then you divide it by the number of individuals. So you can think of a straightforward test you've had in school, or you may have had in school where you get a percentage grade, say someone got a 95, someone got a 90, and someone got an 85. You would add those three numbers together if there were three students in that class, and then divide it by the number three, and that would give you the mean. And then to calculate variability, what we're going to do is for each observation, for each score recorded for each individual, we're going to see how far they are from the mean. This is known as the variance, and it's, uh, it's symbolized in your book by s to the second power, or s squared. And the idea here is that for each, you want to know the total amount of variance from the mean, the total amount of variability around the mean. And so to do that, we take each observation, we take each test score, 
subtract the mean from it, and square it. And then we add all of those together, and then we divide it by the total number of observations. So in my 85, 90, and 95 example, you could add those together, divide by 3, you get an average of 90. And then for each observation, you would see how far they are from 90, and then square it. So, for example, 85 is the first observation. You subtract 90 from that, you get minus 5. Minus 5 squared is 25. And then you have an actual observation of 90, which is the average. 90 minus 90 is 0. 0 squared is 0. And then you have 95. 95 is the observation. Subtract the mean, which would be 90. That gives you 5. And 5 squared is 25. Right? There's a couple examples in the book. But essentially, you're taking the distance of each observation from the mean, squaring it, and then you're dividing that by the number of observations because this gives you the average squared distance from the mean. On average, how far is any observation from the mean squared? The other number that we care about uh, typically when thinking about describing the variability is the standard deviation. You may remember that from, if you've ever had exposure to statistics. You now have mean, variance, and now standard deviation. And standard deviation is represented in the book by the symbol S as opposed to S squared with variance. And to get the standard deviation, all you do is take the square root of the variance. You unsquare it. The variance was squared distance, but if we wanted to get the average distance not squared, we unsquare it, and that gives us the standard deviation. You take the square root of the variance. Now, Fur highlights a couple of important characteristics of uh, variance and standard deviation. I'm going to read a couple of those to you. The first is that the size of the variance and consequently the size of the standard deviation is determined by two factors. The first and foremost obvious factor is the degree to which the scores and a distribution differ from each other. Just kind of what I was highlighting with uh, scores on a test out of 100 and having an 85, a 90, and a 95. But the second factor that's maybe less obvious is that uh, the second factor that determines the size of a variance is the metric of the scores in the distribution. So an example I was using, it was a out of a hundred score because that's kind of typical in education in school. But you could think if it was out of 10, right? And, and you could only use, uh, you only use whole numbers. So then you're, Score options are 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. And 0, I suppose. Whereas from 0 to 100, you have a lot more choices. So variance is likely to be higher on a scale where you have higher metrics. <laughs> from 0 to 100 as opposed to 0 to 10.
So we'll look at uh, here in a moment some ways to um, have some different measures that take this into account that different metrics are going to give us different levels of variance. And there's a neat little trick that's going to uh, go from variance to covariance that does allow us to meaningfully look at differences across different measures and have them standardized in some way so that if our school, if our test was on 0 to 10 versus 0 to 100, we can at least standardize them so that we're comparing apples to apples. And we'll be doing that with a correlation as opposed to a variance. So, uh, and I've already highlighted these, but I'll just highlight uh, first comments on them as well. Uh, considering the nature of variance and the factors that affect its size, there are four factors to consider in interpreting variance or standard deviation. The first factor is that neither one can ever be less than zero. It can't be negative, and that's because we, uh, we squared them. Second, there is no simple way to interpret a variance or standard deviation as large or small. Again, this is the, the metric problem if it's on a 0 to 10 scale versus a 0 to 100 scale. Third, and related to the second, the variance of a distribution of scores is most interpretable and meaningful when it is put into some kind of context. And that's going to be part of what the rest of the chapter is about, is how to take these basic notions of variability and covariability and put them in a context that it's useful. Fourth, for our purposes, the importance of variance and standard deviation lies mainly in their effort and their effects on other values that are more directly interpretable. So they're going to help us calculate some different measures that are more uh, useful in terms of interpretability. And this moving forward, uh, the book shows that the variance and standard deviation uh, as I've mentioned, are a part of concepts such as the correlation coefficient, the reliability coefficient, confidence intervals, and test bias. All right, so moving on, on forward, uh, Fur moves to a discussion of distributions, and particularly normal distributions, and why we need them for thinking about a distribution of test scores. Um, and uh, this is going to affect our ability to make some judgments about what our scores mean, is what type of distribution do we assume. Um, and uh, so just one of the big typical distributions is the normal distribution. And it has some concepts that we're going to use. And we'll in general assume that if we have enough scores and they're drawn in a certain way or recorded in a certain way that they will approximate the normal distribution. Um, although there'll be some cases where we know that's not true, so we'll have to do some adjustments. But we'll talk about that a little later on. Just know that we're using the normal distribution with some regularity. And if there's another distribution that we're going to be assuming, we'll be pretty explicit about it. So moving from this notion of variability, let's talk about covariability. And covariability, as uh, Fur defines it, is the degree to which two distributions of scores vary in a corresponding matter. 
So, uh, excuse me, corresponding manner. And so you might think of things that are going to vary in the same direction. All right, so the example I used at the beginning of the lecture was height and weight. As you're taller, you have more body mass, and so you weigh more. Um, and you can think about other relationships that we might hypothesize about for psychological attributes. Um, one is that uh, people who have job satisfaction maybe are more highly motivated. So those are people that are people who are satisfied in their jobs maybe are more motivated to do a good job. Um, maybe people who have higher job satisfaction are um, also, what else? They might have more or less intrinsic motivations or more or less extrinsic motivations. Or maybe those things work together to influence job satisfaction. Um, so there's all types of psychological attributes that we might care what they are related to or what they might predict. One of the ones in thinking about higher education is the scores on a SAT or ACT and how well that might predict a GPA score. Both scores that are measuring some level of aptitude or knowledge accumulation and the idea is that the higher the SAT score, the higher standard aptitude and that, that will be related to your ability to absorb and retain knowledge in college with, related to a higher GPA. Those things, someone might hypothesize, as the book does, that those things co-vary together. And in this particular example, they co-vary together in a positive way. All right, so uh, first is, moving on, there are two types of information that we would like to know about the association between two variables. Um, first, we would like to know the direction of the association. So I was just hypothesizing that uh, SATs and GPA scores are positively associated. They vary together in a positive direction as one is higher, the other is likely to be higher. Second type of information that we would like to know about the association between two variables, as Fern tells us, is the magnitude of the association. So how strongly related are those two variables? Is it, um, is the, do they have a large effect on one another or, or a smaller effect? So this is where uh, Fern uses the SAT and GPA example. Um, the other useful concept that for our highlights is consistency and consistency um, is a useful concept to consider when thinking about the associations between variables as first says we can interpret a strong association between two variables as showing that individual differences are consistent across the two variables for example a strong positive association between SAT scores and GPA would mean that differences in SAT scores are highly consistent with differences in GPA scores. People with relatively high SAT scores have a strong tendency to earn a relatively high GPA. As a matter of fact, a strong negative association can be interpreted in terms of consistency as well. Whereas strong associations, either positive or negative, 
indicate a high level of consistency between two variables. Weak associations indicate inconsistency. And this is important uh, later in the book, in chapter five, uh, we'll return to this notion of consistency for thinking about reliability. So from there we go on to talk about covariance. Covariance begins building a bridge between the concept of variability and interpretability of covariability, as first says. So again, we have this units problem where if things are measured on different scales or even uh, we don't, or if we don't know what the scale is, it becomes really hard to know how to interpret covariability. And covariance is going to be a way of standardizing that. And um, I'll just highlight here first process for computing this, for computing covariance. So uh, he says computing the covariance between two distributions of scores can be seen as a three-step process. First, similar to variance, we compute deviation scores. So we find the mean and we calculate all of the distances or the deviations from the mean. In the second step, we compute the cross products of the de these deviation scores by multiplying each individual's two deviation scores. All right, so you, do it for, you, do, you calculate the deviations for each variable and then you cross multiply them. You just multiply them, cross products. And in this way, the, it can be a positive or a negative cross product because we're not squaring the deviations this time. And um, in the third and final step, as first says, we compute the mean of the cross products. Okay, so with variance, we calculated the mean, we measured the distance or calculated the distance of each observation from the mean, we squared each one, and then we added them together and then we took the mean of the distance. We divided it by the total number of observations. Doing a similar thing with, um, with covariance, we are doing it across two variables. So you have variable x and variable y. You might think of height and weight. And for each one of those, you find the mean. You find the distance of each individual from both of those means on each variable. So you find out the weight from the mean and the height from the mean, and then you multiply those for each, each person, their distances from each, from each mean of each variable. And you add them together, and then we divide it by the total number of observations to get the mean. So we've gone from variance, uh, which is a measure of variability, and now we have covariance, which is a measure of covariability. But we still need a measure that will be standardized so that we can know how two measures co-vary together. We have their covariability, but this is still in can be in different units or different scales and those, um, we may not know what those are, or if they're different, then this becomes uh, not very uh, useful to interpret.
And this is going to lead us to wanting to create a correlation. Um, Ferd talks about variance and covariance matrices, which you need to know about, so check out those. Um, but the correlation coefficient is, as first says, is intended to provide an easily interpretable, interpretable index of linear association. Correlation coefficients are bounded within a very specific range of possible values. They can range only from negative one to positive one. And the way we're going to interpret these is the closer to one, the stronger the positive associ uh, relationship association and the closer to negative one, the stronger the negative association and the closer to zero, the weaker the association. And as first says, the great benefit of correlation is that it reflects not only the direction of association, but the magnitude of the association much more clearly than does the covariance. And as I mentioned, and first says, regardless of the metrics of the variables, a large correlation in terms of its absolute value reflects a stronger association and a smaller correlation, uh, one that is closer to zero, reflects a weaker association. And then you can see the actual formula um, and here the essentially the covariance is bounded by the standard deviations in the two variables so you take the co the total covariance and you divide it by the standard deviation of the two variables multiplied together and as first says the importance of the correlation cannot be overemphasized from this point forward, almost nearly every chapter will use the concept of a correlation coefficient in some way. So if you don't understand a correlation yet, stop, re-listen to the lecture, reread the, the chapter of the book, find some videos, search for some videos online, have a good understanding of what a correlation is um, and how we interpret it and walk yourself through going from a central tendency measure of mean to variance to covariance to correlation. All right, so um, there's some special properties for variance and covariance for composite variables that um, for highlights, I'm gonna uh, just catch a couple of these quotes as well. Um, says the variance of composite scores can be computed in the way they outlined previously in equation 3.2. However, it is also important to realize that the variance of a composite score is determined by the variability of each item within the composite along with the correlations among the items. So you can see there that the variance of a composite in the section S squared composite is equal to the variance of item I plus the variance of item J all through all the items you might have plus two times the uh, correlation of the of the standard deviation of I and J. Let me say that again. I don't think that was clear. So the example in the text, uh, the formula is the variance of a composite created by summing scores on items I and J. Um, and these are the uh, variances of items I and J. RIJ is the correlation between scores 
on the two items, and SI and SJ are the standard deviations of the two items. So, um, the variance of the composite is going to be equal to the variance of each item, item I and item J in the example, uh, plus two times the correlation of all the items multiplied by their standard deviations. Um, and this first says, for more than one pair of items, the right-hand term of this expression is expanded, repeating itself for each additional item pair. For our purposes, the important feature of this equation is that it shows that total test score variance will depend solely on item variability and the correlation between the item pairs. We're going to come back to this at a later time. Um, there's some special attributes of binary items that you might measure, uh, say, 0 or 1. Um, and first says, in this way, tests based on binary items are very similar to other tests. However, binary items have some special properties that we will reference later in the book. Um, and to do that, for how it's how to calculate the mean and standard deviation of a binary item. That's in the text. I'll let you reference... Uh, that on your on your own time but this is going to come up again so make sure that you understand how to calculate the mean of a variable that is binary and calculate its variance alright so the third and final kind of major section that was mentioned at the beginning of this chapter is interpreting test scores um, and this section is really going to be about how do we figure out how to put scores in a way that give us as much uh, information as possible given what we want to know and given that we're using tests to measure things that we cannot directly observe. All right, so um, Fur highlight starts this section by saying, on most psychological tests, the raw score on the test is not inherently meaningful and thus not easily interpretable. That's what I was just highlighting. By, quote, raw scores, we mean scores that are obtained most directly from the response to test items, such as the number of, quote, agree responses on a personality test or the number of correct responses on an achievement test. So they're not directly interpretable we need to have some ways so that we can interpret them so that they are useful so uh, first says there are at least two facets to the meaning of test scores in psychological measurement the first is the basic meaning of a raw test of a raw test score as being relatively low or high the second facet of meaning is more abstract and psychological specifically the second facet concerns the psychological implications of test scores. That is, what does a high score on a particular test actually mean psychologically? What else is it related to? What type of useful information does it give us? What is it, uh, what is it related to for real-world outcomes? So um, the remainder of this chapter will address, uh, as first says, the fundamental problem of interpreting the magnitudes of test scores, such as that are low, medium, or high. And the uh, solutions to this problem are built on issues we have already discussed in terms of quantifying individual differences within a distribution of scores. 
so that mean and variance and covariance and correlation and standard deviation are all going to uh, remain relevant. That is, to interpret an individual's raw test score, we need to refer to an entire distribution of scores on the test, and we must identify where the individual's score falls within that distribution of scores. Okay, so you can think about some what all can scores on a test tell us. Well, one of the useful things is going to be, okay, how did I how did this person do compared to some typical behavior, some typical score? Typical score being our measure of central tendency, being our mean in this case. And we want to know how to interpret some individual score relative to that central tendency, to the typical one. It can be low, lower than that score, it can be right there with it, right in the medium, or it can be higher. And we might want to know a little bit more about that. We can think about percentiles, like are you in the 90th percentile or in the 10th percentile? So what's kind of your magnitude related to the entire to the mean or your place in the entire distribution? on this score. And um, so building from that, uh, before we get to z-scores and standard scores, first says the two pieces of information, whether a raw score falls above or below the mean, and the distance of the scores from the mean, are going to be used to compute z-scores, sometimes called standard scores. Then the book goes on to talk about converted standard scores and percentile rates. So this is the process of normalizing a score so that it's more interpretable. And instead of having low, medium, or high, eventually we'll get to things like percentiles, but we're going to look at how far is the met is the score from the mean in some standardized way and this is where our friend standard deviation will show back up we're gonna z-scores are going to tell us how far an individual score is from the mean in terms of standard deviations so let's do a really simple example before I give you the formula let's say that the average score is a 50 and let's say that the standard deviation the average distance from 50 is 10 so we have an average of 50 and a standard deviation of 10 let's say that you scored a 70 alright 70 is two standard deviations away from 50. If you go one standard deviation, that's going from 50 to 60, because standard deviation is 10. If you go another standard deviation, that's 70. All right, and this z-score formula is just going to highlight that. The actual formula is going to be x minus x bar divided by s sub x, which is going to be uh, what you scored, and this example is 70, minus the mean, which in this example is 50, divided by the standard deviation of x, which in this case is 10. 70 minus 50 is 20, divided by 10 gives you a standard deviation, or a z, uh, gives you a z-score of 2. Again, in our example, 70 was the score, 
50 was the mean. You had 70 minus the mean. That gives you 20. And then the standard deviation was 10. 20 divided by 10 is 2. So, again, a z-score is just the number of standard deviations your observation is, your score is away from the mean. And that is standard deviation units. Um, Fur goes on to give you, a few pages later, a formula for computing the correlation between variables using z-scores. Um, so this is just the sum of the cross products of each individual z-score on the variable, on, on two variables. So you just multiply someone's z-score on variable x, say height, someone's variable on a z-score y, say weight, add all those together and divide by the number of observations. You can convert uh, z-scores into some other normed uh, measure. Um, in this case, we our average was is set at zero, and we're looking at distance from that for the z-scores. Um, and a z-score of zero means no distance. A z-score of two means two standard deviations above the mean. But you can also uh, convert this um, to some new standard. I don't have to standardize it to zero. Um, and the way to do this is shown in this chapter as well. And these are called converted standard scores. And the formula for that is uh, T sub i equals uh, Z sub i S sub nu plus X bar nu. Um, and this is where T is the converted standard score and Z is the individual's original Z score. Um, and the S here is the, is the new uh, score you want to norm it to. Excuse me. The X bar is the new average you want to norm it to instead of it being zero. That's the um, new average you want it to be normed to. And then you have uh, the standard deviation of the new um, of the new variable, and that's your s nu. That's the standard deviation of your uh, new norm. So the example. Let's just walk through the example the book uses because it was a little confusing, I think. Uh, for example, someone with a z-score of 1.5 on this paranoia scale would have a t-score of t equals 1.5, which is the z-score, um, 10 is the standard deviation, plus 50, which is the average, equals uh, 1.5 times 10 is 15, plus 50, and so their score on paranoia scale would be a 65. And all we need is the average and the standard deviation of the, of the scale. So, um, for kind of uh, closes out this section um, and talks about thus and says thus z scores standard scores are informative because they are a pure expression of a score's distance above or below the group mean. By extension, converted standard scores are informative because they simply re-express z scores in a way that might be more intuitive for people. For then goes through percentile ranks and how to calculate those. Um, which I will, uh, you should look at in the book. 
Um, and I want to end here with just uh, two quotes from for on the importance of test norms and the representativeness of the reference sample. And so a lot of these normalizations that we're going to do require us to make some assumptions. And that is that they are normally, the scores are normally distributed in some way. They're distributed in some way. And so on test norms first says, in psychological measurement, many tests have been normed to facilitate their interpretation by test users. Often during a test construction process, test developers administer their new test to a large group of people who are believed to be representative of some relevant population. After this large group has taken the test and their scores have been calculated, test users can use their scores as a frame of reference for interpreting the scores of other people who will eventually take the test. The large group of people used in the construction of a test that is referred to as the reference sample and their scores are called the norms for the test. So, one example of this is IQ, where uh, the test is renormed to have an, uh, an average score of 100 with a standard deviation of 10. Um, the same is with some standardized tests as well. For example, I believe the LSAT for law school functions this way. Um, it's set to some norm, and it's all deviations from that norm or that average. But it's important to know that in these tests, we're relying on some group. We're not measuring everyone. We're, me we're relying on some reference sample to determine what the, the norm is, what the average is. And um, as Fur goes on to say, selecting the individuals for a reference sample that is truly representative of a target population is a very complex issue. Uh, there are entire books written on the issue, but for our purposes, we need to discuss only two types of sampling procedures. One is probability sampling, and two is non-probability sampling. Uh, and Fur describes probability sampling as refers to the use of certain procedures that ensure a representative sample. Think of a random sample. Um, you look at there's stratified random sampling and cluster sampling, a few different strategies for that. And this is, as first says, in contrast to probability sampling, non-probability sampling refers to procedures that are not likely to produce a sample that is representative of a target population. And this might just be going up to people on the street or on a college campus or uh, out in public and asking for their opinions on something. Uh, it's not likely to be representative of the entire population of people. So, first says, in sum, when gauging the utility of a set of test norms, we must pay attention to the reference sample's representativeness, which is itself related to the way in which that sample was selected and recruited. Okay. I think I've thrown a lot at you in this lecture. As I said in earlier lectures, I was hoping to keep these much closer to 20 or 25 minutes. So uh, if this was a lot to take in in one setting, definitely feel free to pause, rewind as you listen to it again. 
and uh, hope you find this informative, and uh, thank you for listening.